You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Well, good morning to all of you, and welcome to our Sunday service here at Christ Our Hope. Those who are here in person and those who might be watching us online, I'm sure one of those keenly watching online is our very own Father Jeremy. Uh, Since he could not be with us here this morning, Father Jeremy has been kind enough to uh, ask if I would be willing to conduct the service today and celebrate the Eucharist with you, which I'm happy to do. And I will also give you the good news that he had already prepared the sermon, so it's his sermon, it's not mine. Um, so and, and, it, and it is a typical excellent sermon, I can assure you, so you can look forward to hearing that. He decided to take a whole different approach to the, uh, to, to the way he looked at this. Uh, last week, I know, I gave the sermon and we talked about Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and so today... I guess our supposedly St. Jeremy is sending a letter to the church in Fort Collins. (laughs) Dear Christ our hope, I'll read his letter. I am sorry I cannot be with you today. Worship with you is the highlight of my week, and I sorely miss any opportunity to gather and share in the hope of the gospel. But this does give me the opportunity to participate in the great epistolary tradition begun by St. Paul, As he would say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Julie Canlis is a theologian and the wife of Matt Canlis, a priest in our diocese. I picked up her little book, A Theology of the Ordinary, after hearing her speak at our diocesan gathering. In her book, Julie suggests that one of the most influential figures in American Christianity is Charles Finney, a name that I imagine few of you will recognize. But Finney's revivals in the early 1800s were one of the places that Americans came to associate strong emotional experiences with true spiritual experiences. Finney was convinced that each person was free to choose their own salvation. And he discovered that the best way to get them to make that choice was through emotional manipulation. His revivals would feature an anxious bench at the front where anyone who was unsure of their salvation could sit. While they sat in full view of the gathered assembly, Finney would preach sermons that hammered upon their insecurities, including calling people out by name until they would give in and make a public commitment for Christ. He got results, but he did so under his own power. He said of these meetings that, quote, it is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means, unquote. The large number of conversions that Finney was able to produce would produce real change in people and communities for a time. 
People came to associate the emotionally charged moment of their conversion as the hallmark of genuine religious experience. And when their feelings grew stale, they looked for the next emotional moment that could get them going again. So Finney would come back around and give a re-revival and a re-re-revival <laughs> until people were immune to the experience he offered. Eventually, the areas that he visited frequently became known as burned-out districts because the people there would no longer respond to the message that Finney or any other evangelist offered. Canlis sees the legacy of this in the many present-day people who judged the reality of a spiritual experience purely based on its emotional content. There are many Christians who fall into this category. People who look for churches that are able to produce the highly emotional experiences they crave. There are pastors and worship leaders who are all too happy to oblige, using many of the same emotionally manipulative techniques that Finney employed. Many more people consider themselves spiritual, but not religious. They're drawn to any experience that can offer them the feelings that they view as the hallmark of a true religious moment. They may find it in church or a yoga session, on the ski slopes, or in a Buddhist meditation seminar. It's all the same, as long as it can produce the right feelings. Now, I want to be clear. Most Christians, myself included, have had highly emotional experiences during worship or prayer. This isn't wrong. God gives us our emotions as surely as He has given us our ability to reason. And we need not distrust one more than the other. The problem comes when we expect these emotional experiences to be the norm. When we seek out mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience. Anyone who's hiked to the top of one of Colorado's 14ers can tell you that the view is amazing, but it's not a place that's suitable for humans to live. This is reflected in our texts from today. There were two literal mountaintop experiences in our lectionary readings. Both of them involve a very real encounter with God's glory. Both of them surely impacted those who witnessed them for the rest of their life. But these encounters were gifts of grace, moments to be gratefully received, not manufactured. And it is clear that these glimpses of glory are intended not to be a standard by which the life of faith is lived, it's to prepare us for the many moments when we will be called to live faithfully under far more ordinary circumstances. The first mountaintop experience comes from the Old Testament reading in Exodus chapter 24. Before our reading, the Israelites have passed through the Red Sea and gathered at Mount Sinai. God has spoken to them, orally giving them the Ten Commandments. He has given other laws to Moses, laws concerning worship and justice, social laws and religious laws, laws about celebration and rest. He has made a covenant with the people a covenant sealed with the blood of sacrifice. 
Now, God wants to give the people something by which they can remember the covenant they have entered into, and he commands Moses to come up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments on a tablet of stone written by God's own hand. Moses obeys. The elders who were gathered with him watch as Moses and Joshua walk up the mountain where they stopped just short of the cloud that represented God's glory. After six days, Moses was called alone to enter into the cloud where he was surrounded by the glory of the Lord. He remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. But this time on the mountain was not simply so that Moses could have an ecstatic experience. While he was on the mountain, God gave him more instruction to bring back to the people of Israel. He told Moses how to make the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle that would house it. He told him about the altar for burnt offerings and the vestments that the priests were to wear. He gave instructions about the daily offerings the priests were to make. And he told Moses about the craftsmen he had placed among the people of Israel who would be able to realize the artistic vision he had described. And he reiterated the importance of Sabbath of regular rhythms of work and rest. Moses' mountaintop experience was not simply for himself, and he returned with instructions for daily life. Neither Moses nor the Israelites were expected to live in the cloud of God's glory. How could they? Nor was Moses to simply look forward to his next invitation to the mountain. Moses was to use his experience as a way to bless others and to prepare the people for a daily walk with God. This is the way of those moments when we are drawn into glory on God's terms. It comes with an equipping for the work God has given us to do. In his book on contemplative prayer, Hans Urs van Balthasar describes the results of a glorious encounter with God in prayer. Quote, When he emerges from prayer, he is not as one blinded by younger glory, unable to come to grips with the world here below and yearning to retire to contemplation's blissful meadows. He appears as someone sent who has received in contemplation without being aware of it, all the equipment he needs for his Christian mission, the authority, the abilities, and the taste for it. Unquote. Our experience of God's glory prepares us for the ordinary moments in life. A glimpse of Jesus' glory prepares his disciples for a cruciform life. This is true, too, in the second mountaintop experience we heard read today. Jesus went up into a mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, where he radiated the glory of God. His face shone, and his garments became dazzling white, and he spoke to Moses and Elijah. The disciples were amazed. But while Peter was still stammering something about building three tabernacles to mark the event, they heard a voice from heaven say, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples were instructed not to tell about this vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. In fact, this experience is to prepare them for precisely that moment and the life of discipleship they were to lead after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
In chapter 16, Jesus tried to tell his disciples about his coming death and resurrection, but Peter, who had just confessed Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of the living God, could not stand to hear of Jesus' suffering. God forbid it, Lord. He said, this must never happen to you. Jesus' response was to tell him, get behind me, Satan. And then he told his disciples that they must live a cruciform life. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The transfiguration account follows immediately on this statement. And a few days later, he told them again, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. It is no accident that the transfiguration occurs in the middle of all of this talk of death and resurrection. The glimpse of glory that they see on the mountain is to prepare the disciples for the ordeal they are to face. It is to help them hold their faith in the midst of trial. It is to help them follow the way of the cross. We, too, are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And often, the glimpses of His glory that we are given are to prepare us for the moments of trial we will face. God knows what we need, and He is faithful to provide it. We should not be surprised if a wondrous experience is followed by a time of darkness. It does not mean that we've fallen out of God's favor. It means that God in His infinite goodness and grace has given us exactly what we need to get through that moment. In our world, there will be many who try to tempt you with a continuous stream of positive experiences. There are those, like Finney, who knew how to manufacture a religious moment that feels real. There are those who will tell you that with the right technique, you can move from one moment of spiritual elation to the next. There are those who will present a portrait of their life on Instagram or Facebook that makes it seem they have attained this ideal. But those who offer this are like Simon Peter denying the way of the cross. The glimpses of His glory that God gives us are not for us to experience all the time. They are gifts of grace that prepare us for the ordinary moments of life and sustain us in our suffering. When you know this, you can receive those moments with gratitude for what they are. Take heart, dear church, for God is with you. He is with you even when you do not feel that to be so. He is with you in your sin, calling you back to Him. He is with you in your suffering, forming you into the likeness of His Son. He is with you in the moments of silence when you cannot sense Him at all. And yes, He is with you in those moments of glory where His grace shines through you like a light. But His presence does not depend on your feelings. And this is such good news, news that allows us to walk in freedom before our Lord. In just a moment, you will gather once again around the table. I wish I could be with you, but know this, God is with you. Christ is present in the bread and in the wine. 
He is with you right now, even as you await the taste of His presence. And there will be a day when our Lord returns, when we shall see Him face to face, shining in all His glory forevermore. Let the glimpses that He gives us now allow us to walk the way of the cross for the sake of the joy that is set before us. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.